0: Stay tuned for The 7th Avenue Project, online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hey, one and all, it is time for The 7th Avenue Project, Today we are going to attempt to redress a stereotype that I think has been unfairly foisted on a group of people. I am talking about elite mathematicians. It seems like the media prefer to represent them as eccentric at best, or downright autistic, as though genius required some kind of social or psychological deficit. You know, the uh, zero-sum theory of human ability. We're going to give you a little extra in this department, but take away something else. So, uh, for example, we get the schizophrenic math whiz John Nash in the movie A Beautiful Mind. Or maybe you remember the news coverage of Grigory Perlman, the reclusive Russian mathematician who won uh, the math equivalent of the Nobel Prize called the Fields Medal in 2006, but refused to accept it, shunned interviews, even talked about quitting math to avoid the attention. And that, apparently, is how we like to think of our math savants. Remote and inaccessible. Well, today on the show, I got a guy who kicks that image to the curb.
1: My name is Cédric
0: Villani. Yep, he is French. He is a world-class mathematician. In fact, Cédric won the Fields Medal himself in 2010. But he is in no way reclusive or unapproachable. Since getting the big prize, he has become something of an international spokesman for math and science. When he's not doing research, he is traveling around, speaking to the public, participating in educational initiatives, and helping to make math cool. When I uh, first met him after a talk at Stanford University, a bunch of high school and college students were lining up to have their pictures taken with him. They we were treating him like a rock star, and uh, he does look like a rock star from an earlier century. He has this uh, cool retro look that one journalist compared to a combination of of Oscar Wilde and Franz Liszt. And i got to say, Cedric gets away with it. I think it helps that he's French. But we will hear about his taste in ideas and in clothing, and lots of other things, both math-related and not, in the hour ahead. Starting off with his childhood.
1: I was a very shy child, Um, often sickish, let's say often missing school, a bit too much protected by my parents, maybe, who knows. Anyway, and uh, as far as I remember, I was interested in math and uh, good in math, so to speak. Uh, In my room and so on, I remember I used to read uh, some of these adventures like the life of Gauss, uh, the classification of the regular uh, platonic solids and um, things like this. So, interest in mathematics as long as I can remember.
0: But you must have been exceptional in your abilities at a young age. Is that true? Uh,
1: Exceptional might be a strong word. You know, when we mathematicians think of exceptional ability at young age, a name that will pop in our heads, maybe Gauss, yeah. maybe Ramanujan. Uh, how can you say you have exceptional ability <laughs> when you look at the, the life of Gauss? Uh, at four years old, was correcting the mistakes in computation of his father and so on. Okay, in in, in class, as long as I remember, I was maybe the, the first in the
0: class in, in
1: mathematics, was always, let's say, easy with mathematics. I would not call that exceptional
0: when did it become clear though that this was going to be your vocation?
1: Ah, this is uh, the the right question and the answer is that this came extremely late. It was not a childhood dream or not even a teenager dream. This came when I was uh, working on my PhD. This was uh, very clear. All the all my uh, trajectory up to let's say uh, 20 years old or something was only letting myself Uh, go with the wind, you know, go there. In the French system, traditionally, if you're good in math, you end up doing math. It's kind of natural selection, so to speak. Mm. And I ended up at uh, Ecole Normale Supérieure at uh, age 18. I had prepared a lot, worked very hard to uh, achieve this goal. It's an extremely selective competition. You know, they take only 40 people per year in, uh, in mathematics. This is by and large the most difficult competition in mathematics in France and certainly one of the most selective in in the whole world. And um, it's no accident that uh, people from uh, École Normale Supérieure have been getting uh, more fields medals than from any other institution in the world.
0: I should say that uh, the École Normale Supérieure is a university in Paris, yes? Um,
1: yes, it is more complicated than university, but um in the french French tradition, you know we're wants to have exact names for seeing this and this while in the uh, united states uh you are much more at ease to call university many different institutions which sometimes technically are not universities. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I was not sure I would become a a researcher until I uh, went uh, into my PhD. So I started when I was like 21, 22 maybe and when I um, defended my PhD at age 25 or something, it was clear this was a job that I liked and that I... uh, um, wanted to do.
0: Well, since you decided rather late that you were going to be a mathematician, what other options were you thinking of at that time?
1: Oh, um, there were always uh, ideas that it could be something else. When I was a teenager, maybe my uh, favorite uh, career would have been that of a paleontologist. I was Ah. mad about dinosaurs. I I uh, knew everything about them. I still have books from that period, you know. Uh, they are full of notes and I underline some of the important words and so on. Uh, this was so fascinating for me. Biology has always been kind of... the I always had this idea that this is the most interesting subject in the world, a subject that we understand so little compared to, to others. Um, at the time of... Um, Ecole Normale Supérieure. I was in this size, you know. I, I, I started at some point, I kept some uh, chemistry courses because I thought, wow, mathematics is, seems to become really tricky and difficult. Maybe I need to go mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. more applied sciences mm-hmm. at some point. And uh, I was also considering seriously a possible career in uh, administration or things like this. Oh, I really? was, uh, yes, as a. President of Students' Union, I, w- I think I was really good in what uh, what I was doing. Uh, something like organizing or administration or or who knows. Uh, f- I think uh, running company or something like this would have been something I would have enjoyed. I, uh, I like this idea of coordinating things, being always on the watch out, uh, being kind of team leader. These are things I like. I am... Now I am director of institute, and uh, somehow it is certainly related to that experience of uh, president of Students' Union.
0: The Institut Henri Poincaré. That's right. uh, Named after the great French mathematician Henri Poincaré. Uh, Yeah, I think people, when they think of mathematicians, they might think shy, withdrawn, socially awkward, introverted. Not the kind of people who would like to lead institutes (laughs) or (laughs) even consider a career in business. For you, that's uh, you're not that shy anymore. You said you were young when you were young.
1: There are all kinds of uh, behaviors and uh, shyness. You know, many people. Some sometimes people who are very uh, open are uh, the, their shyness somehow has been turned inside out, and you never really know. I think, for instance, the. When I I do these uh, public lectures, sometimes in front of uh, 100, hundred, two hundred, sometimes thousand people. You you heard me lecturing in uh, in Stanford one of yeah. these public lectures. Yeah. Uh, when uh, I, what I can say is uh, when I lecture like this, it's never something that is uh, plain and banal. It's always an intense feeling. They always keep this emotion of the of the of the speech and hmm. uh maybe hmm. it's, uh, somehow somehow is related to that um anyhow being uh, shy and shy and introverted traditionally has been considered as something like a, a drawback or an, a negative virtue i think somehow things are a bit changing and uh, um, nerdiness is uh, becoming mm. more in fashion. People Very much so. Yeah. Look at this with uh, yeah. you know more tender eyes, and uh, partly because society has gone so long, so so far in being as a whole bully, and uh, we are somehow tired of hearing people bragging about every possible thing. That it's good to see people who make great things and are uh, and are still modest. And partly because, um, these uh, sciences have taken uh, place in our society that is much higher. I mean, think mm. of the importance of computer scientists. These people that you would make fun of 20 years uh, ago, the, <laughs> those shy people, nerdy, spending time on their computer. Now some of them are the richest men in the world. Now they. <laughs> yeah,
0: money changes everything. <laughs> 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 um but I think also people think there might be a trade-off between uh powers of concentration the ability to focus on incredibly complex problems for long hours and days and months and years that it takes to be a great mathematician and on the other hand being socially engaged you know all of these uh things that would distract you from that task so people think you're either one or the other
1: um, there is some element of truth in that. It is this, uh, these issues, the issue of concentration and the issue of time, is one of the most uh, tricky to handle when you are a researcher. Uh, as uh, being both a researcher and a director, I consider this is the main uh, challenge, the uh, compatibility of these rhythms. The rhythm of research is a rhythm of long periods of time in which you have to be focused. That is not just about um, mathematics, by the way. It's about any job in which you have to develop your skills and focus and listen to yourself and inner voices and, and so on. Mm. I was um, recently having a dinner with the... A very good friend of mine is the skateboarder, Ronnie Mullen. I don't know if you're uh, familiar <laughs> with the skateboard world, but he's one of the uh, absolute uh, most uh, inspirational skateboarders in the history of, of the skateboard. He invented all these tricks and so on. And wherever the time, he would he would uh, take some time, uh, rain or, or shine, whatever. In the night, for instance, he would go at at midnight, skate for two or three hours, being focused and and so on, and often alone, you know, concentrating, focusing on his moves and so on. So, in a way, even though we think skateboarder is something really cool and uh, extroverted and so on, and this guy is absolutely terrific, by oh, the way, is yeah. uh, and so intelligent and so on. And uh, but uh, it requires these periods of being alone and focusing and thinking and experimenting.
0: How, everyone will want to know this. How did you become a close friend of Ronnie Mullen, the skater?
1: Oh, this was, uh, um, with this, when, during one of these, uh, TED talks. I was a speaker at the, uh, um, TED Coast in Orange County, uh, and, uh, this is the magic of these, uh, conferences, these TED conferences in which people are invited who come from every discipline. So there is, a lot of interaction from the speaker, between the speaker and the audience, but also between the speakers. Sometimes mm. they meet and uh, we discover, wow, it's so, so interesting, everything we have in common and w- so on. W-
0: what, what did you find in common then? Both obsessed or <laughs> oh. <laughs> driven people? <laughs> uh, uh,
1: like uh, I found in uh, Ronnie, I found something like a kind of feverish way to always wanting to know everything. Uh, a lot of culture. Uh, you know, there's a skateboarder and you discuss with him, you discover he's interested in sciences, he's interested in literature, he's interested in people, he has traveled all around the world, many experiences to talk about. Mathematicians are, are travelers like like crazy, you mm. know, among scientists who are the one who, who travel most and uh, we like to, to discuss and share and see this, how this and that culture are different and so on. Not judging people, trying to understand why these people behave differently from these others, understanding the whole beauty that there is in this whole crazy uh, kind of uh, world world society we are in now.
0: We were talking about the need for undistracted, undivided time to tackle big problems. Your uh, PhD work uh, was on the Boltzmann equation, a complicated partial differential equation. How many years did you spend on that problem? Oh, pff, something like 10 years maybe. 10 years. And in the end when you wrote about it, how many pages did you write about wow, this work? Thousands of pages. Thousands.
1: Thousands of pages and I tell you the <laughs> equation is still not solved in the usual uh, sense that you that you that you may think of. I am not a prolific writer. I know people who write more sometimes people who write much much more. I'm more focused, so I worked on Boltzmann equation, I worked on another problem called optimal transport, and I worked also on uh, equations from plasma physics. This is not Boltzmann equation, but it's related to Boltzmann equation, It would be called the Vlasov equations. I think the amount of papers that I wrote, or the overall quantity, is not is not that uh, impressive it is good but uh, it's not uh, it's not monster but the fact that I uh, could write for instance the two books on uh, optimal transport, to reference textbooks on this, especially the second one, it's a thousand-page uh, reference book. This, I, I think, is uh, is quite impressive. When I look at the book myself, I say, "Wow, well, how could I, <laughs> how could I do this?" You know, when you are in such a uh, such a project, you become so obsessed with the thing that it becomes your life. And from morning to evening, you write and write and write and and change the notation uh, change the order of chapters rewrite everything and so on and uh, in the end there is a kind of feeling of emergency you have to do it it's mm. like your it's like your your life depends on it mm.
0: thinking about the work you did on the boltzmann equation you said 10 years several thousand pages it's still not completely solved but for those 10 years you carried around this gigantic problem And even in those moments when you weren't actively working on it, you had to remember it (laughs) and then sit down and reconnect. I'm having a hard time imagining having something so big in my head at all times. I think for most of us, uh, you know, we move from thing to thing, but nothing that gigantic for years at a time.
1: This is a great question. Memory varies a lot from uh, person to person, and memory also depends a lot on how you train it. Also, memory is organized in various uh, levels. Sometimes your will, memory will be like memorizing every detail of something. Sometimes it will more be about big picture. The way I would be, like I think most of my colleagues would be, we remember for mathematics problems the main uh, conclusions, the, the, the main ideas and so on, and the details we forget. When we look back at the paper, what you own wrote, you see, ah, yes, I remember it's like this. Sometimes you think, gosh, how could I find this nice (laughs) trick? (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) There are are stories like this. People that are things that are more directly uh, impressive, uh, I think, are the people who recall things exactly. I have another friend, Daniel Tammet. He's a a rather famous um, writer with some kind of autistic uh, syndrome. He's a gifted uh, writer. He holds the European record of memorization of Pi. So this guy... Oh, I've heard about uh, him. Uh, yeah, he's, he's a very interesting Does fellow. Does he have a book out right now? He has a couple of books uh, out. Uh, one is called I Was Born on a Blue Day or something like that. Mm. Uh, he, what he writes is always interesting. And in one of these uh, chapters, he writes about about this when he was uh, breaking the the record of pi how it was like so imagine this guy coming in front of the jury sitting with just one glass of water like i have now <laughs> and reciting like 20,000 digits is that pi. about what he has
0: memorized this is 20, about 000? this is
1: about can you imagine uh, <laughs> this kind of thing? and uh, still he's not a, um, a researcher in mathematics right. so it's but it's a, a kind of memory you see it's quite different mm. from the kind of memory i have to use it's impressive no. in its way and so on
0: do you think you could explain for us just a little bit of what the problem was that you were trying to solve in your work on the boltzmann mm. equation
1: I will I will first everything can be uh, explained as long as you put it at the right level of uh, understanding depending on the audience and uh, let me see so that it was not a problem which is just one question when you study an equation there are many questions and sub questions which can be asked and by the way uh, little by little, when you answer some of these questions, more sub-questions or complementary questions open up. In uh, the Boltzmann equation, first let's say what it was. And this is one of the fascinating stories of the of science. Uh, so Boltzmann was this Austrian scientist living at the um, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, who together with Maxwell made up statistical physics, the way we think of it now. Statistical physics is the idea that we are going to explain some properties of the world by uh, thinking of it not as just one object, say the gas would be one object, but as a collection of many, many tiny objects that we cannot see. And uh, maybe this gas has a complicated property, but we can understand this complexity from the fact it is made of a very large number of entities, each of them has uh, having a
0: simple behavior. And by the way, we should say that Boltzmann came up with this description of a gas, a bunch of particles bouncing around, before the existence of atoms and molecules yes, was even is, proven. Uh,
1: that is a very important remark. At this time, the existence of uh, atoms was not proved, was the subject of debate, Uh, People like the prominent uh, French uh, chemist uh, Berthollet uh, wrote that atoms were just some fantasy or (laughs) things like this. And um, Boltzmann and Maxwell were extremely daring in this. Maxwell I think it's fair to say was the the genius in the story. When you read the papers of Maxwell, there is a feeling of awe that descends on you like how is this possible from a human for a human being to go so far and so with such power uh, in the field.
0: James Clark Maxwell, the Scottish physicist who was the Einstein of his era, I'd say. Kind he, of he, he, Yes, he,
1: I would I I would say so. Einstein said of uh, Maxwell that he was the man who changed everything, like he reshaped the the complete vision of the physics. Boltzmann was not so impressive in terms of power of mind, but he was very daring and original and inventive, and uh, he had a few brilliant ideas that uh, completely changed the subject. And uh, in particular, while Maxwell had established the basic equations of the field, so how you describe a gas, taking into account the fact that it would be made of these billions of billions of particles, Bosman took back these equations and he added in particular the concept of entropy. Let's measure how is the molecular disorder of this gas. So there is a precise mathematical concept he introduces, that of um, this mathematical disorder. He calls it entropy. He gives formula for it a general abstract formula and then a more practical formula so that an engineer can compute the entropy of a gas if he's able to measure the statistical properties of the gas.
0: The uh, the simple formula, the one that's on his tomb, is S, which is entropy. S is K log W, yes. K, which is a physical constant, Yes. times the logarithm of this term called W. Pretty yes. simple-looking formula.
1: Very simple-looking formula. In this uh, concise form, it was... Written by Planck uh, and uh, put on the grave of Boltzmann, because um, really Boltzmann was the guy who who showed uh, uh, how important it was. When I introduce this in public lectures, I often say it's a simple, deep, and uh, and important and powerful concept. You can it can this formula can be both simple and deep. And uh, S is k log W is not less important in physics than, say, E equal mc square, the famous uh, Einstein equation of conversion between energy and uh, 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 energy and matter and mass. So this S is k log W even is something that is more present in our daily life. It is about the the, the world around us. In particular, Boltzmann understood that this tendency of a gas to maximize the disorder would explain the fact that the gas would typically become homogeneous, that uh, he would equilibrate, that if you start with some, uh, if you put some heater in some room, turn off the heater, but part of the gas is hotter than the rest, and little by little,
0: these uh, differences in temperature will homogenize, will equilibrate. It will all mix together because these particles are all moving around. Yes. And because statistically, it's more likely that they will fill that space than that than they will all end up by accident in one corner of the room or something like that.
1: That's exactly what it is. And this was really a, um, a reasoning that was mathematical in spirit. It was based on the power of combinatorics in describing how these, uh, what is the disorder or likelihood of some configurations of gas. In a way, uh, it's important also, you insisted very rightly on the fact that atoms were a speculation at the time, and it's remarkable that these guys, they pushed it so far. And um, uh, kinetic theory, now it is called this whole field, in which you consider not only the positions of particles, but also the velocities of the particles that you don't even know exist. This was very daring, because when you see a gas that is completely still, like the air around us look still, it's very difficult to imagine that what seems to be just uh, steady, not moving, is in fact made of particles that uh, move each of them at enormous speed, and that what we see as something being still is in fact the average of so many, many very quick particles moving in all directions. And with uh, just a little stretch, one can compare this uh, intellectual daring field To current day uh, string theory, in which uh, we are, there is, it's postulated some variables that we cannot measure, but on which we average
0: out to Mm. get the properties of uh, the visible world. Mm. Mm. So, Boltzmann's formula for entropy, which is the disorder of a system, and by the way, I think as our audience knows, this disorder is always increasing on average. <laughs> in any process, uh, that, uh, even if you arrange things in an orderly fashion, you're doing it at the expense of disarranging things elsewhere as when you burn right. some fuel to build something. <laughs> the burning of that fuel creates more disorder than any amount of building you could do with that energy. So that's a really important concept, and Boltzmann was part of it. But, but that simple formula is not the Boltzmann equation, which is the one we... This
1: is not the Boltzmann yeah. equation. It yeah. is uh, uh, related, but uh, the Boltzmann equation... Is the equation that describes the evolution of the gas, of the statistical properties of the gas. Say the gas, uh, say you prepare an experiment and you inject some gas in a box or something, and you want to know how it will evolve, then the equation for it was written, it was first written by Maxwell and then um, changed a bit and uh, a bit recast, let's say, by Boltzmann. it would be more accurate to call it the uh, Maxwell-Boltzmann equation, but f- everything should be named after Maxwell <laughs> in some sense. So Boltzmann equation is a is a good name, and um, it is by using this equation on one hand, the Boltzmann equation of evolution of the gas, and the formula for the disorder on the other hand, for entropy, so the Boltzmann formula, that Boltzmann proved that the disorder can only increase in an mm. isolated gas. Mm. The Boltzmann equation uh, is so it has several facets. It is fundamental from a theoretical point of view because it tells us something about the irreversibility of time, the arrow of time, and um, in that it has an importance that goes way beyond the class of systems to which it applies. It's almost a philosophical problem, and I, I have seen philosophers discussing about the, the Boltzmann equation and so on. But it is also a practical equation that is used nowadays, in particular in the aeronautic industry or in the car industry, whenever you have some problems involving motions of gas that it is important to control.
0: What was so interesting about this equation and the problem that it presented that yes. it kept you busy for ten yes. years. <laughs> yes.
1: So the way I the way I explained it, it seems that it's okay. Boltzmann solved it. He had the right, equation, had right. he solved the problem. So why bother working on it? Once you've done this, there are so many, so many problems you can be interested in. And first the reasoning by Boltzmann, clever as it is, elegant as it is, is not complete mathematically speaking. One first thing is that for instance he doesn't prove that his equation has solutions you can write an equation but it doesn't tell you this is this has a solution i can write hundreds of equations we have which have no solutions and uh, for the reasoning to be complete you have to to understand what's the uh, solution what it looks like uh, will it be smooth as we say so that there will not be some sharp change of properties of the matter in some uh, regions of space or will it be will it develop shocks we know mm. for some equations shock appear discontinuities can appear spontaneously.
0: Now, now C- Cedric, explain for us. The equations there, Boltzmann's equation, uh people said this equation is correct, right? So if you plug in the numbers representing the state of the gas at a certain time or whatever, yes. yes. How why can't you solve it?
1: Okay. <laughs> you can uh, people say the equation is correct because it matches with the uh, experiments to some extent. This is This is messy physics in a way. It's not like uh, the pure um, quantum mechanics when you look at behavior of one atom. Here, these are properties. For instance, you describe uh, the atmosphere. It is a mixture of gas. Collisions are dirty processes. Writing the equation is very complicated. Some part is fitted with data, things like this. Mm. But... Uh, it is an equation that gives good results and its predictions have been checked with uh, quite some good uh, accuracy in many situations. So it works that the uh, experience shows it works. Still, if you are a bit of a theoretical mind, you're not satisfied with this. You would like to understand why it works. Can I prove that it works? Can I understand if the reasoning is accurate and so on? This is where mathematical side of uh, physics will come into play.
0: Is that what you mean by solving it then? Yes, solving, solving the
1: equation would be uh, understand the properties of the solution um, as uh, best as is uh, possible. For instance, is it true that there is a solution? How smooth is it? Uh, Is it the possibility of a bunch of very high-velocity particles developing spontaneously, or will this not occur? Is there a quick approach to equilibrium, or is it uh, slow? This problem, for instance, is one of the driving problems I worked on. How fast will be the convergence to equilibrium? Mm. Even uh, from... uh, numerical point of view, doing it with computers is not so easy, and uh, one of the conclusions that we that we drew from qualitative quantitative analysis at some point with my collaborator is that the approach to equilibrium is not as um, smooth as one could believe, but that there are some kind of oscillations for instance in the amount of entropy which is produced in the way you approach equilibrium, and it's an effect that at the time had never been uh, described by people during numerical simulations ah. it required actually some uh, numerical schemes that were more precise than those used uh, used before
0: you've just raised a question i think people might have which is why can't you just have computers do all this ah. why does it take a, a guy is, like you to devote a, yes. a big part of your life this to this is it? this is a
1: question <laughs> that is uh, that is fundamental and um, and which uh, was uh, let's say Uh, relevance has become critical nowadays. One of the public lectures I like to do is the um, lecture about the age of the Earth. And I recall a time of big controversy at the very beginning of the 20th century between Lord Kelvin, um, who was the leading figure in physics of his time, that was after Maxwell, and uh, Sir Charles Darwin, Who arguably was the most important scientist of his uh, time, all all fields um, taken into account. And they had this heated debate about the age of the Earth. Darwin, for the theory of evolution, needed billions of years, something like that. And Kelvin thought the Earth was no more than 20, 30 uh, million years old. There was a huge contradiction. And the core of this was a uh, part, a problem of mathematical modeling. Kelvin would uh, use the theory of uh, heat and uh, the Fourier theory of how the earth cools down to compute the age. In the end, it boiled down to a mathematical problem, a mathematical modeling problem. And why Kelvin was wrong is that he had not understood that inside the earth, it is like a um, kind of a liquid, some, some fluid, and we mm. know there is convection and mm. so on. He mm. had no idea. By the way, one has to realize that we understood quantum mechanics long, kind of long before we understood geology and what was behind, uh, be, uh, beneath uh, the crust of the Earth. And so, in this problem, often I, so I explain how how this was heated, how it was solved. There are many, many interesting, um, it's a fascinating story in, in, in the history of sciences. And uh, you know, even if Kelvin had had the best computer that we have now at this time, he would have still made the same <laughs> mistake. Mistake was not in the uh, computation; it was in the modeling.
0: The modeling and computers are not good at creating models.
1: Computers—it's not their job. The computer is a stubborn, <laughs> stupid thing that computes what he's told to do. You know, and uh, if we uh, put him on the right track, he will—he will miss. One of the most important uh, problems of our time, both uh, in science, in uh, environmental, but also in politics, is the problem of global warming. I mean, this is really one issue that uh, if I I personally would like that governments uh, around the earth would be much more daring and courageous than they are on this issue, which is one of the very few issues that uh, can threaten uh, mankind. And uh, the whole of the argument in the end is not about uh, when you compute and so on, it's not about whether the computations are correct, these are totally awesome computers making all these computations and predictions, it's about the modeling Mm. and the modeling is theoretical questions, a question of partly physics, partly mathematics partly uh, ecology biology and so on like forests and uh, in there, in the, in the core of this, is the, is not the Boltzmann equation there, it's the Navier-Stokes equation. So it's one key mathematical equation describing the evolution of fluids and heat and temperature and uh,
0: velocity. Mm-hmm. Now, you can always use computers, I, I think, to check the model against the data, right? That is right. You could say, here's a model of how the Earth should warm with this much carbon dioxide emitted. Now let's look at the climatic data. Let's use a computer to see if the model matches the data. But the computer is not smart enough to actually create the model, you're saying.
1: Computer is not smart enough to create the the model. Now, there is also another thing that um, when you want to make these uh, computations, you can never put the total equation. It is an illusion to think that there is one... Equation explaining everything. You have many models, many mm. equations. Mm. And um, you have, s- very often, you have to replace fine equations by more global ones. And you have to understand how you make this replacement. Like, uh, you have many different boxes, how you put them them into uh, bigger boxes. It would be like for the result of a presidential election. You want to first get the right number of votes state by state, after you do it, the the complete comparison. It would be the same in this problem of the climate. You want to first understand what's the contribution of the sea, what's the contribution of that forest, and put all them into various boxes and put them together. How you do this job of putting together is a tricky thing. How you simplify things to obtain something can be very tricky. Also, you have to find tricks to accelerate the computation at the time it would, otherwise it would take years and so on. These tricks can be very tricky to mm-hmm. require mm-hmm. uh, some uh, amount of mathematical ability. And uh, there is no dichotomy between being pure rigor and I want an exact abstract regal- result and being uh, just uh, playing with the, with the computer and being all in the feeling and so mm-hmm. on. There is kind of a continuum. Sometimes the inspiration from mathematical theory will help you get a good trick, etc.,
0: do you know the story of um Edward Lorenz, uh the climatologist at mm-hmm. MIT who accidentally discovered chaotic processes?
1: That's right. He had this um Lorenz had this equation which was uh, a simplified model of uh, meteorology and um uh he found that even on this very simple model Equation involving three variables, nonlinear. It was impossible to predict what would be the long time behavior of the of the system. Like uh, changing t- tiny, tiny, tiny bit initial conditions would lead to a dramatically different behavior at later times. This was this has been uh, dubbed since then the <laughs> butterfly effect. Yes, mm-hmm. it is uh, still debated nowadays if there is a butterfly effect in uh, meteorology. I mean, for the uh, Mm. true equations, Mm -hmm. it is clear that for the model of Lorentz, there is this effect, but it's such a simplification. And uh, unlike um, popular belief, it is not true that the more equations there are, the more complicated it is. Sometimes Mm. a big number of equations can simplify.
0: I thought of him, because we were talking about models and computers, and the way he discovered this, He was running these simple equations that were meant to model um, the behavior of the atmosphere, you know, weather or climate. And he was getting results that were way off, way off. And he eventually discovered it was because of a tiny change rounding off some of the numbers that he put in to begin with. And that tiny change resulted in huge changes of the results, which showed that minor changes in initial condition. And by the way, it was Henri Poincaré who first noticed this long ago, more than 100 years ago, that tiny little changes could result in huge changes in the result over time, meaning that things could appear to be really chaotic, you know, that we had no understanding of what was going on out there because of this tiny little variable. Um, uh, uh, And that was a problem with, you know, computers, you know, in a sense.
1: Yes, in a sense. I am... I am um, not familiar with the details of the story of uh, Lawrence's discovery, but what you tell us is uh, perfectly plausible to my to my ears and um, It is true that when you listen to talks by people who really have to deal with chaotic effects, and one important case, for instance, is people who study the long time behavior of the solar system they spend enormous amounts of time within the talk, let's say, to discuss about rounding errors Mm-hmm-hmm. and that you should never write that <laughs> 1 divided by 3 is 0.3333, etc. You should <laughs> keep it in the form 1 divided by 3 until as as, as long as you can Infinity. and so on. <laughs> because, yes, a tiny error can be amplified, etc. And there are special tricks to avoid errors, to accumulate and uh. so on in the um, way to handle uh, numeric operation, this is fascinating. It is true also, as you say, that this was in germ in the works of Poincaré, who discovered this extreme sensitivity to initial conditions at the same time as another Frenchman, um, Jacques adamard Ah, oh, I didn't know that. Yes, Poincaré usually gets all the credit, but adamard also finds this phenomenon of sensitivity to initial conditions at the same time. What Poincaré understands better, that is also in Lorentz, is the idea that even if it is chaotic, when you look at the statistical properties, you will be able to predict them. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, both... uh, Okay, Lorentz has rediscovered this. He was not aware of Poincare. Lorentz writes something like, even if it's impossible to predict if a certain typhoon will occur at that precise time or not, I think that we can predict the statistical number that there will be. Maybe the order of the events changes, but the uh, at the end of the long period, the number, we, we will have right. And Poincaré has this um, very daring um, phrase. He says something like, um, even, uh, you know, the natural phenomena like this, the equations are so complicated that I cannot write them down. I can ignore them, I, 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 I don't know them, but this is this ignorance that will allow me to predict them because mm. you should only take care about the statistical properties. That's the other side of chaos that is much less uh, well-known than uh, the first one. first side is the fact it's impossible to predict mm. the outcome of a chaotic experiment, but the other side is that you can predict on average how much, uh, how it will behave.
0: That statistical... Uh, revelation that you don't necessarily need to know anything about the details. You don't necessarily need to know even how things work. But if you look at them on average over, you know, enough time with enough events, you can begin to see patterns in order and even predict things. It's always struck me as magic.
1: (laughs) It can be. It is kind of magic. It is kind of magic, but uh, that's the, the why uh, mathematics is so uh, fascinating. You arrive and you end up doing things that seem impossible even um, even if you think of uh, the basic experiences involving probability, you know uh, when there is a big election going on, and so on, the big poor institutes they are able to <laughs> give the result with quite a good accuracy just by asking a tiny fraction of mm-hmm. the total. It looks like magic. A why tiny would this, sample, yes. Tiny sample. Why would <laughs> the, knowing this tiny sample have an influence on the yeah, rest? This, yeah.
0: is, this is magic. Um, what is the relationship in your opinion between math and the world, between math and nature?
1: Yes. Um, like many of my uh, colleagues nowadays, I uh, belong to the um, kind of uh, neoplatonistic trend uh, who believe that uh, mathematics um, as an abstract theory has an existence that uh, is, uh, goes beyond uh, its uh, materialization and that goes beyond the development be- made by uh, human brains so the idea that somewhere there is some kind of world of ideas in which Uh, mathematical objects and concepts make sense, and so on. And that we are rediscovering them and putting them into flesh with uh, theorems and uh, sometimes with uh, experiments, checking the accuracy of models, for instance. This uh, would be my uh, view. Um, Every famous thinker knowledgeable in science... uh, Uh, from Einstein to Wigner to to anybody, has wondered at some point or the other about the fact that the universe can be reduced to such a small set of rules and uh, concepts. Of course, the um, variety of the combinations of these rules and concepts Allows for the fantastic diversity of the world that we that we see around us and the amazing complexity of uh, of life, for instance, which is so so tricky to to understand. But uh, when you go at the very tiny scales or very large scales, it ends up um, being reduced and described by a relatively small number of rules mm, in mm. the physical world, in the mathematical world. Mm. Yeah.
0: This idea of Neoplatonism, the idea that there is a reality to mathematics. It's not like the hard reality of the physical world. I can't touch it. I can't see it. But it's real in some sense. And that it's not just some figment of the human imagination, because people like you go into this landscape and travel through it and discover things that nobody had ever seen before. So there's some place (laughs) that you're going. But, you know, it's funny. A lot of empirical scientists I talk to have a hard time accepting that. The the natural world is the physical world. This platinistic idea of mathematical ideals existing in some yes, other in they think plane. it is childish. They think it's childish. But I can't, personally, I can't see any other explanation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe you have an element of childishness also. <laughs>
0: Oh, definitely, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Now, Roger Penrose, um, the physicist and mathematician, he even has a little drawing that he shows these three worlds: the world of the mind, uh-huh, uh-huh. the world of the mind, the world of the Platonic um, uh, ideals or of mathematical reality, and then the physical world. Three interpenetrating, overlapping, you know, strata of reality.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is cool.
0: <laughs> is that sort of how you see it too?
1: Kind of would be kind of. Now it is, of course very uh if you want to really push things, you end up uh, immediately in problems of definitions and contradiction, like for instance. Try to, defi- try to give a definition of reality, yeah. and you end up yeah. doing it. It's, it's yeah. very tricky. You have to go through theory of perception. It's very tricky.
0: I agree. I think we take for granted that the physical world is a self-explanatory <laughs> thing, but it's not if you look closely. Um, but some would say, well, you know, the relation of the physical world to the mathematical world is math is the most real thing of all because it's exact, because it's perfect the the uh physical world is just a poor, you know, uh <laughs> emanation of mathematical perfection. An implementation. Yeah. <laughs> implementation.
1: Yes. Um some people say this. I like to stress the idea that mathematics is um concrete. Uh, not really with this argument, but with the argument of learning. Because I like to recall audiences and students that mathematics is the only science in which they will be able to really check by themselves everything that the teacher tells them. Mm. If you have an experiment in chemistry and you see some reaction and so on, you never see the tiny uh, atoms moving around and so on. And you have to take for granted that. The reaction does this or that. You have to take for granted the existence of these carbon atoms. I have never seen any carbon atom, my Mm. friend. But uh, triangles and circles, I can draw them. I can do the mathematical reasoning. I can do it for myself and become, in the end, convinced for myself that this is the truth. Mm. And in a way, in that sense, uh, the mathematical truths, they are the most concrete that you can imagine, at least the closer to you.
0: Now, what about the fact, though, that you are basing, ultimately, this chain of proof on something at the very bottom, which is an axiom, mm-hmm. which is a self-explanatory given fact of of mathematics, right? Yes. I mean, Euclid had his axioms yes. about parallel lines and things like that. And you didn't prove those. You proved yes. everything from those. Yes. What are those? Yes. The axioms. It's...
1: Well, there we are going into a bit of the same kind of metaphysical trouble and uh, contradictions as when we try to say what is the world or things like this. So the idea emerged in ancient Greece and with Euclid in particular that in mathematics you start from some truth that you admit and you will develop all the rest from logical thinking. Uh, first comment is that it looks crazy as an attitude, a priori, because mm. if you accept some things for granted and from there only use logic, you yeah. will never end up anything interesting. It seems that you already know everything that mm. there is to know. Mm. And there it's the magnificence, uh, magnificent elegance of mathematics from a small set of axioms, you recover an incredible complexity and diversity, a little bit as the world is able to produce such diversity from a very small number of rules. And uh, the other remark is that um, the point of view that there are axioms is a kind of uh, realistic point of view in which we are not trying to look for the um, absolute one truth, but the idea that maybe there are there is a mathematical world with such thing is true, another world with such other thing is true, and so on, and we may change our set of axioms, maybe. And these uh, axioms will uh, reflect sometimes common sense, sometimes the abstract translation of uh, some things that we feel and that we believe are true. So, in this, the uh, choice of axioms, like an element of, um, how to say, something which is arbitrary, which is man-decided, in Mm a way. I like to think that the mathematical reasoning and the conclusion deductions, etc., this is something that is not arbitrary, that it is one and unique. But the starting point, what we decide as axioms, this has some element of arbitrariness and some uh, man decided.
0: Uh, basis. So what do you think, though? You and your fellow mathematicians have built cities on this foundation, vast cities, countries, universes on this foundation, and you're saying the foundation is a leap of faith?
1: Um, the foundation is a leap of faith, partly I would uh, a leap of common convention, uh, huh. even though... Um, not all mathematicians agree on the axioms. And uh, uh, to quote one particular example, which has been debated somehow rather hotly at times, there is one particular axiom called the axiom of choice, which stipulates that roughly speaking, if you have a collection of sets, you may pick up one element in each of these sets and cook up another set that would contain all these elements, each of them picked in one of the, uh, of your, the sets from your collection. Mm-hmm. It looks like a plausible axiom, sensible and so on. But many people don't like it. I and I don't use it. It leads to paradoxes. For instance, the axioms that is basic behind this famous Banartarsky tarski paradox, according to which, starting from a ball uh, in the world of mathematics, but let's think of it as a ball of matter, we may cut it in a finite number of pieces and uh, reproduce each piece in a different region of our world, but just the same piece, just rotate it and translated. So that the union of these other pieces makes two balls. So you started from one ball and without creation of anything, you have two balls and you can continue. This is like Jesus, you know, multiplying the, the, the bread and so on. With these uh, uh, theorems, you can end up uh, cooking from an arbitrary amount of matter, an amount of matter which is million times bigger. Mm. And this, uh, one of the ways to solve this paradox is to say that this is because in the proof is used this uh, axiom of choice, Mm. which you can object by saying that if you have a very, very large, totally infinite collection of sets, how will you pick one Mm. element in each set? Mm. So there lies the problem of how constructive in your approach. And um, this is one of the reasons why I don't use this axiom and if you look at my uh, book on optimal transport, for instance, at the beginning I say axioms, I use the classical axioms of blah, blah, blah. I don't use uh-huh. the axiom
0: of choice. So you know you've chosen a bad axiom when you reach a contradiction at some point.
1: Yes. There are, however, in the particular, um, in the particular example that I mentioned, there are other ways to get around this uh, contradiction. One of the ways is to say that, you know, these pieces that we made. What is a piece? Mm -hmm. Uh, A piece, we like to think it has a volume, for instance, if it's a portion of our space. But how do you define the volume? Sometimes the piece may be so irregular, so fractal-like, you know, in a very, very wild way that we cannot even measure its volume. And that would be another uh, way to resolve this. That's another way to resolve Uh this contradiction, Uh saying that it's this theorem is irrelevant because the pieces are so irregular that in practice they could never be constructed. Um, when people say, and when people object, saying, you know, there's nothing bad with the math theorem, it's because of this and that, I say, okay, but suppressing an axiom, if you don't use it, is always better for the sake of simplicity. When you don't need a hypothesis, mm. you can get, let's get rid mm-hmm. of it. When you don't need an axiom, Let's forget it. Mm. The most fascinating question, though, about axioms and proofs, okay, one of the most fascinating issues is that nobody has ever proven that the set of axioms used by mathematicians worldwide, even taking out this controversial axiom of choice, there are sets of very basic axioms that everybody accepts. Mm. They have a name, people call them the Zermelo-Frenkel axioms. Everybody accepts them. Hmm. Nobody has ever been able to prove that they are consistent.
0: Oh, boy. Maybe
1: there is an in- <laughs> errant contradiction inside them, and maybe uh. some day some guy will end up with a theorem that is proven to be true, but is an internal contradiction. That would be big, my friend. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that would be a Fields medal, probably. <laughs> oh, uh, even more than that. Now, we mentioned the Fields Medal earlier, way back at the beginning of the interview when you talked about the fact that the uh, school you went to in Paris, the École Normale Supérieure, has produced more Fields Medal winners than any other institution. That is the – some people call it the Nobel Prize of of math. Uh, It's the top prize for mathematicians under the age of 40. It's given out every four years. So it's actually harder to get than a Nobel Prize, which is given out every year. Um, And you got it in 2010. Uh, Yes, um, along with several other mathematicians
1: along with several other, um it's i would not say it's harder to get a nobel prize it has a kind of different dynamics it suits every 4 years but typically or often there are there are four mathematicians who get it it is more recent than nobel prize it uh, started in the um 30s and um up to now, only, I think, 55 or something like that mm. people get it. So but it's it, still a, a very rare
0: distinction. It's a big deal, though, and, and I want to know what the effect on, y- on your life has been. You became a oh, public figure as a result it of been, this. Uh,
1: it has been tremendous. The uh, effect of uh, of this uh, has been tremendous. Um, not that it changes a lot about your status as mathematician. You know, we mathematicians, we all know each other kind of, everybody knows who's very strong, who's very good. Oh, this guy surely deserved the field medal, for instance, but he was 42 years old when he got his big result, for instance, so he did not get it or things like this. We all know. Mm. And um, there is a rather good agreement among mathematicians about who's the most impressive who, and so on. So uh, this doesn't change much uh, in the community, but for the outside world, the, the change is, is tremendous. You become a public figure, and uh, you everybody invites you to speak of your of your field, mm-hmm. of your domain, and all of a sudden you have a lot of credibility and people ask your advice, your opinion on many, many issues.
0: And they interview you like this. They interview you like
1: this. <laughs> but this interview is special. You are way more uh, uh, cultivated, versed in uh, mathematics and, and sciences. Um, I would say, uh, first, uh, it, it is quite understandable why these uh, things is such a change. First, uh, within a world in which uh, most uh, debates are occurring at national level, a uh, field medal like Nobel Prize in an international um, award. So, all of a sudden, it gives you resp- kind of credibility mm. like it's mm. the whole world that determines this guy is good, this guy it's, did it's something. It's a big responsibility. It's a big responsibility. And, uh, in mathematics, certainly it, uh, was uh, much more of, uh, um, I would not like to use the word burden because I did not, would not call this experience unpleasant, but invading in my life mm. as for most other mathematicians who get it. There are uh, several reasons for that. One reason is that, um, I don't mind, uh, going on interviews and making public lectures. I love public lectures. And I like to talk about my job. I wrote a broad audience book, which was a a hit in France.
0: Sadly, it hasn't been translated into English yet. I'm waiting for it to come out in an English translation. It's called uh, Théorème Vivant, The Living Theorem. Mm -hmm. And it's about your work and how you, you know, solved a problem. Yes, it's Uh, like a, a
1: diary of a mathematician. Like you are coming to grips with a problem. How does it... How does it work? First, how do you find the problem and uh, how do you develop it? How do you solve it, etc.? How do you communicate it? And what it's like, the job of a mathematician, even behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. before you go and explain your results and so on. So I did this and it was an extremely rewarding experience, both intellectually and uh, uh, how to say at affective level. Mm, Many mm. people wrote me, have so many discussions, Mm. so many invitation interviews and so on. And, uh, so kind of I, um, took the, the job, uh, in replacement of many other colleagues who prefer to keep it more quiet. And I don't blame them the least. You know, mm. everybody has his style. And if people want mm-hmm. to con- be uh, left alone and continue to, to make their research in peace, I totally uh, respect that. But so for that reason, I, this, uh, was, uh, very strong for me and uh, it was amplified by the fact that I had um, quite a bit of responsibilities, director of institute. Since then also I have um, some association, I'm president of an association, I'm also vice president of some political uh, European movement. Um, so various things going on at the same time which also amplified this uh, load.
0: Oh yeah, and you're a father too. Two Two young children? Yes.
1: I'm a father, which also <laughs> is an enormous uh, load. Yes, even though as they are uh, growing older, the uh, load is, um, is less invading. Uh, my kids are in their early teens now.
0: How are their math skills?
1: I think it's not bad, even though I would, uh, uh, at this age, I would uh, never put uh, a judgment, you know, uh, whether it's outstanding or so on. My, um, son is uh, very poor at computing I have the impression, like he still doesn't know his multiplication tables but uh, this doesn't worry me, uh, mathematics is not about computing, it's about uh, logical reasoning and, and concepts yeah. so we'll see how things develop
0: uh, um <laughs> I want to ask a question that is probably very typical of media interviews. Um, You said this wasn't a typical interview, but this one's going to be very typical. I want to know about your style. Okay. Um, (laughs) So let me describe for the listeners. Anybody who Googles you will see pictures of you dressed in what some people might think is maybe late 19th century style. You have a three-piece suit. You have what we in the U.S. call a cravat uh, yes, cravat,
1: lavalier uh, in French. This is cravat, uh,
0: and it's uh, tied. Even
1: though uh, the one I'm wearing right now is in a scot, which is a variant oh, of, the, of the cravat.
0: But your very beautiful ties that are tied in f- you know fancy Thank ways. You. And you also have a uh, lapel pin, and it's a spider.
1: Yes, I always uh, wear a, a spider pin, and um, the general idea of the. Um, costume dates from my um, early 20s uh, at the time I was student in Ecole Normale Superior before that I was more of the usual uh, nerdy type, uh, <laughs> yeah, nerdy <jeans>. type. <laughs> well not even not even jeans uh, uh, but uh, very no- nothing nothing fancy and nothing uh, particularly original but uh, at some point at the time I felt, confusedly felt, I needed to find my uh, my style. At the same time, I let my hair grow. Um, here they are unusually, unusually long, but this is uh, Berkeley style, no? <laughs> Hi- hippie style in some <laughs> sense. Uh. But uh, let my hair grow, find this kind of suit and so on. And I did it like experimenting, you know, visiting the secondhand stores and visiting the shops and uh, uh, trying this or that until I felt, yeah, that's me now. This was for the uh, general uh, and uh, I tried the bow ties, I tried the the jabot, etc. As for the spider, this is more recent. It came like uh, 10 years ago and um, uh, after a couple of reasons and coincidences I started to wear a spider pin and uh, uh, somehow it caught and then I continued this and uh, now I uh, always wear. Since then, I always wore. Uh, oh, so it's
0: not symbolic, though.
1: It, it is referring to a particular incident. Well, I decided I would never um, talk about it. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Uh, because partly because I found out that um, uh, this spider is, is a very strong symbol. It makes mm. people react very strongly, and people, many people, they, they like this, they like this, and they like to make their own theory. Right. Uh, it's
0: a reference to Ariadne. Some people
1: yeah. <laughs> make this as reference to Ariadne. Exactly, that's your theory. <laughs> so, it's much better to let to let people uh, exert their imagination, you know. It's like the rule in uh, poetry, never explain what you meant. Mm.
0: I wonder what people when they meet you and they don't know about you, what do they think? Do they think, oh, um, you know, a musician um, maybe from 100 years yes. ago? A poet? Uh, musician, eccentric and, 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 uh, artist, and, uh, musician,
1: poet, artist are the, yeah. the usual guesses. Yeah, and the um, the spider. T- I mean, um, every time I fly a plane, etc. Even the, there is always some uh, some uh, flight attendant to tell me, "Wow, you have a cool pin or something like this." Uh, <laughs> or people would sometimes people before I get the field middle before I was uh, even in the news. Some people would come and speak to me and uh exhorting me, and you know it's good to be a rebel and so on, things like this <laughs> uh, so <laughs> this appeal to too many people this the the this kind of thing and uh indeed, people often think of uh, their first guess often is uh, is musician uh,
0: are you a musician?
1: I am a little bit uh musician, but not uh, not at all professional level i I uh, played the piano for quite some time. Uh, there was a time uh, but that was before the kids and so on were in where I would play uh, at least 1 hour per day. This was uh, important for me. I certainly have uh, I think I, I can say I have a good music culture and uh, both in, in classical music and uh, rock music um, but I I did listen to many of the uh, musicians from that uh, uh, 19th century you describe. Mm. Um by the way the spider we are I'm wearing right now is uh, was made by a Tuareg artist oh, uh, from North Africa. Uh, from North Africa. Mm. I have a a collection of uh, I don't know maybe 30 uh, spider brooches. Wow. Some of them um, I found. Uh, some of them I ordered. Some of them were gifts, and so on. And they come from uh, uh, almost every continent. And some of them have stories. Some of them reflect some artistic tendencies or of, of this, of that part of the world.
0: Ah, um, in your uh, Stanford lecture that I, I uh, saw, you made a very educated reference to Batman. Uh (laughs) And I've heard that you like comic books or comics. I do like
1: uh, comics. Um, You know, it's like everything else. Outside of it, you cannot understand how people can be interested in that. And one day you find the right reference or the right friend who – gives you a guy and says starts with this and this and little by little you become uh fascinated by
0: by this. What is it about that form though that attracts you?
1: Um comics is fascinating uh form of communication. First um of course there are various tendencies and the uh, three um most culturally dominant influences let's roughly classify them as American type comics um, European and in particular Franco-Belgian comics mm-hmm. and the mangas mm-hmm. and from uh, Japan, Korea, etc. But Japan, the most culturally dominant in this uh, respect, uh, quite different forms with very different uh, axioms, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, what is um, interesting in comics is the um, intensity of the of the story. How it is um, a form of art in which everything plays, I mean, the writing, the, the drawing, the action and so on, as uh, a genre that has something to do with the uh, cinema, let's say, in the way it, the action is uh, put into scenes. Uh, and, um, you feel sometimes with a good comics, you feel so much intensity that uh, that feels in uh, even through some uh, quick reading and um, can be many references can be an extremely rich world for people who are in a haste. This is a very good genre. Mm. It can <laughs> be at the same time very rich mm. and can be um, can be absorbed in a short time. First uh, comics. I was really in the first. Serious comics I was in seriously were um, uh, works like um, the Sandman, Neil Gaiman Mm. Sandman, Mm. or uh, Alan Moore's works, and so on. And from there, a lot of these things. And uh, once you are familiar with the recent ones, you also look at the old ones, you make the comparisons, and so on. One of my friends here in... um, in, uh, in Berkeley, professor in Berkeley, especially of Partial Differential Equations, who invited me already in 2004 to spend a semester here, is a real serious comics fan. And uh, hmm. whenever we write each other, we spend longer on discussing comics than on discussing mathematics. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I've had some comic artists on the show um, and interviewed them. One of them, Art Spiegelman, Oh, I uh, love this guy he's, he's fantastic I have all his works You do, yeah And he points out that the comics, in some ways, at least he thinks th- th- You know, these images arranged in series like this Is a bit like the way we remember things in our mind Not as one continuous movie But as a series of, you know, iconic images And I think he may be right about that
1: He may uh, quite be right um he may quite be right. I think the um you know the, the famous uh, uh, comics artist Will Eisner yes. wrote this uh, kind of book about uh, comics. I think the title is uh, Comics uh, Sequential Art in French it is mm. Bande Art Séquentiel insisting on this indeed succession mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. frames and and strong images. He may he may be quite right.
0: Cedric, it's been great talking to you. I have one last question for you. Is there one central problem, be it in math or or philosophy or anything, that you return to again and again and again in your thinking?
1: So my work is uh, maybe dominated by the notion of entropy in uh, mathematics and more generally also the idea of um, randomness. If there is a common theme between what I've been doing in science and my work as administrator, uh, working for this or that uh, cause, etc., there is always common theme. It is uh, arriving to some place or doing such and such thing after a series of uh, random events, like meeting this guy, <laughs> finding the connection with this, mm-hmm. noting that this can go there, and uh, in all my life, it's series of mm-hmm. these uh, very chaotic type of events.
0: Do you think it's truly
1: random, or is there a hidden pattern? Uh, I don't decide between these. This is almost like it's almost like personal religion how you how you would see this. But I like to see myself as trying to kind of surf on the wave of uh, random events. There are all these things going from time to time, and recognizing oh this. This thing, by chance, is coming here. I can exploit this to go where I'm going, and this okay, I don't know where this wave is sending me, but let take it and we'll see. Uh. I, I definitely uh, don't have the image of myself as somebody controlling or planning things, and um, I don't see myself in any way as standing above. On the contrary, I see myself in the center of things, mm. being nurtured by all kinds of, uh, of of things and people around.
0: And you it sounds like you're very comfortable with things you don't know, and maybe oh. you can't know.
1: Uh, one has to, my friend, you know. <laughs> when you realize that uh, even in mathematics, which is a rather, well, limited area of knowledge compared to other sciences, Nowadays, it's uh, impossible for a mathematician to master more than a few percents of the whole discipline. Um, This has to teach us humility. You know, if even in mathematics I am not able to do more than a tiny fraction of this, then when it comes to the whole world, everything I can do and know and learn will only be a tiny, tiny fraction of everything. It's the same for everybody, so one doesn't uh, have to be uh, impressed by anybody and so on. We are all ignorant, and it's still we manage to do good things, right?
0: Well, this interview has been a good thing for me. I really enjoyed it, Cédric. Oh, so did I. Thank so you so much. I.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Cédric Vellani is a professor of math at Lyon University and the director of the Institut Henri Poincaré. Did I say that right? This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. And we are online at 7thAvenueProject.com.